Great is his faithfulness. You know, I, I hear that song, and I know they didn't mean it, but it says he's never failed me yet. He can't fail. He'll never fail. There's no yet to it. But I thank God he's a faithful God. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Yes, I know that you're not stressed. There's a full week before Christmas arrives. Seven days. Um, see, I think Christmas in our world is a kind of a bizarre holiday in some senses. Uh, although it's filled with light and music and excitement, uh, there's frenzy and it's in incredibly confused. In fact, I don't know if you've noticed, but our culture seems to want to erase the words Merry Christmas from its vocabulary. We're all, all hearing Happy Holiday, like that's a suitable substitute. Um, on one hand, Christmas time, we find songs sung about reindeer, Santa, elves, uh, a mythical, supernaturally empowered fat elf who slides down chimneys and rides in a sleigh. Um, and on the other hand, we have the eternal Son of God who came as a man to redeem mankind, whose words were significantly different than Santa's, Santa's vocabulary consists of ho, 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 Merry Christmas. But Jesus' words were eternal, powerful, enduring, that bring life. And there's his life and death on a cross that includes us into the family of God. And Instead of Santa, who brings it to the good, Jesus brings it to the bad, to the wicked. The season is characterized by mass confusion, furious rushing everywhere. Do you see it? Traffic, madness, crowds, shopping, pushing others out of the way so they can grab the item that's left in order that so they can spend money that they don't have on things they don't need and to give gifts that probably won't be liked or won't fit. We're more stressed out during this time of the year than almost any other. All the while we sing peace on earth, goodwill toward men. We're a little split personality about this. See, some of us still might even believe that Santa who gives things to the good we can do enough good to please God. Otherwise, we might end up with a lump of coal. Well, Jesus came to provide us what, not what we want, but what we need. And he came not to bring it to the good, but to people who don't deserve it. So at Christmas time, who are you celebrating? Are you waiting for Santa to reward you? Or are we here to honor and worship Jesus the Redeemer so today I want to just discuss in our confused world what is the true meaning of Christmas 
you know, throughout Scripture, there's many things that we could talk about, about what Christmas is about and why Jesus came. But I want to cover three. One is Jesus' coming at Christmas was planned. Jesus' coming at Christmas was for a purpose. And Jesus' coming at Christmas was personal, both to God and to you. Each one of us. So let's read our passage this morning. We're going to leap from here, but not spend a lot of time here. But I think it sets the stage well. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." For he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Father, what an amazing story. How Jesus came. The path you took to invade earth. Father, may we not get confused in our busy world full of lights and trees and snowmen and always fall back and when we hear the word Christmas we hear the word rescue God's plan to redeem mankind would you change our hearts today would you fill them with the joy and the certainty of Christ and who he was and what he came to do and would you rescue today even some that are here that still have not yet trusted in this Jesus we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, I hope you've all received a set of notes on your way in this morning. It looks like this. And there's also a list of prophecies I hope you receive. Um, we're going to be moving around uh, scriptures this morning. And I want you more spending time listening than trying to track me down. So I put the verses and everything down for you on the notes so you don't have to worry about writing everything down as we fly. But I want you to not be frenzied this morning and to hear the word of the Lord. The title of the message this morning is really Christmas, God's Rescue Mission Begins. You know... Rescue has been something we're all fascinated by. We love a hero. But this event, this Christmas, was never about Santa. It was never even about just focusing on a baby in a manger. 
because this baby was God himself who invaded earth and was on a mission, a rescue mission for you and me. He was Emmanuel, God with us, and it signaled the most significant rescue mission ever undertaken on this planet. So I want you to be excited with me and track with me as we learn what God was really about when Jesus came on that Christmas 2,000 years ago. But before we talk about how this event was planned and what the purposes were and how personal it was to God, I think we first need to understand why does anybody in this room need rescue? I mean, if you threw a life preserver to a man standing on the shore, he probably wouldn't know what to do with it. He'd go, and your point. Many people in our world today, when we tell them they need a savior, they need to be rescued, their first response is, from what? I'm not in any danger. I, I'm not going underwater. What are you talking about? So let's talk about that for a quick minute because you won't understand God's rescue mission and you, at least you understand our predicament. You know, in Adam, when Adam fell, we inherited his consequences of sin. And when he threw out, got thrown out of the garden, we got thrown out right with him. We can't enter the garden either. We have the sin problem of Adam. And that sin problem was severe. It separated us from God. When God told Adam, the moment you eat this fruit is be the moment you die. Now, a lot of us think, well, God was, must have been stretching a point because Adam didn't just fall over. He didn't die. Physically, no. Spiritually, yes. His spirit died immediately. He was separated from God, estranged. Well, and that's true today. Do you see any residue of this command of God today? Any of your friends have died this last year? Any of your loved ones died? Death is still part of human reality. This is part of what happened in this garden. That was the kickoff of death. But we all were born spiritually dead. We all were born separated. And unless someone could come and deal with this sin problem and this death problem, our separation from God would be forever. This is what Jesus came to do. He was born so he could come and put us back together with a holy God. See, sinful man cannot do that. And a lot of us still try, and I know the world still tries, to say, well, I think I could do enough good that God will say, good job. Well, I just challenge you, just something simple. Take one rotten egg and see how many good eggs it takes to mix with it to make it good. I don't think you can come up with enough good eggs to make a rotten egg taste good. Similarly, and on a much grander scale, there isn't enough good that any of us could do to make us acceptable to God. We were in a predicament. We needed a savior. We needed rescue. Otherwise, our eternal destiny would be to be separated from God. So let's just jump in and find out why I have good news 
that Jesus' coming was this rescue. And Jesus' coming was planned. You know, it's, it was actually planned, promised, and prophesied. Now, those are three different things, but let me just share quickly. Why is this important? I believe that some might believe that Adam's fall caught God off guard. Oops, I didn't expect him to do that. Why did he do that? That's not a truth at all. Adam did not fall without God's foreknowledge and without his plan. In fact, God's plan has always been about his glory. Did you know that? God's plan, let me just read something here. The preacher, uh, Jonathan Edwards, describes it this way in his essay, The End for Which God Created the World. Edwards argued that the Old and New Testaments present one consistent picture. God created the world not primarily to promote human happiness, but to manifest his own glory. Author James Anderson elaborated on this and said, God's overarching purpose in all he does is the manifestation of his glory and the delight of his creatures in his divine splendor. It was into this fallen creation which the eternal Son of God entered, taking on a human nature, living a morally flawless life, making atonement for our sins, and rising in triumph on the grave, ascending into heaven where he intercedes for us forever. A world with no fall or no salvation is less God-glorifying than a world with a tragic fall, but a wondrous salvation. Can you catch that? This is part of God's plan. Why? We don't know. But part of God's plan was to promote His glory as He rescues the undeserving, His grace on display. How else? If you were only rescuing the perfectly righteous, how would that look? There's no rescue. Our rescue helps promote God's glory. So the first thing I want us to note is that God was planning for this before the earth was created. Turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. It says this, Just as He, the Father, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will can you see it before there was a universe before there was an earth before there was a human god had already chosen those who would eventually be on earth that would put faith in his son he has already got a plan before the world was even thought of he already knew what was going to happen Adam did not catch God off guard. And in fact, he had a plan from eternity past to rescue us and to send his son. That's amazing. Jesus knew before there was an earth that the people on that earth would rebel, that he would be sent, that he would willingly come, that he would give his life, and that he would rise from the dead, give life eternal to all who believed, and that was all recorded before it even started. Can you get it? It's amazing. Bethlehem was no accident. It was part of the plan. You were on his mind. Jesus' coming was not only planned, but it was also promised. See, in the garden, 
I always picture this. That day when God re-entered the garden, he loved to walk with Adam in the cool of the garden. It said he loved to come in the cool of the garden in the cool of the day to talk with Adam. And one day, Adam wasn't found. And God's words were, where are you? In other words, why are you hiding from me? And did you know that mankind is still hiding from God? We don't want his gaze on us. John said the world loved darkness rather than light. Whenever light comes in the room, we scatter like cockroaches. But God said, why are you hiding? But right after he dealt with Adam and Eve, he turned his gaze to the serpent and addressed Satan, the instigator of this tragedy. It says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He gave a promise day one that the moment Adam fell, he knew the rescue plan in his mind. The rescue plan was Christ, the Messiah, and he would come and he would crush the head of the serpent, Satan, forever. Right then, at the beginning, there was no, let me think of a plan. That, that was the plan. Now, but it also came at great cost to the son. It said it would bruise the son. This baby, this Emmanuel, would grow up and be crucified on a cruel cross. But God said Jesus' death would not be a crushing blow like Satan's. It was a bruising blow. And what does that mean? Three days later, Jesus walked right out of that tomb. He was not dead forever. He rose again. That was not a crushing blow for Jesus. It was a painful blow, absolutely. It separated him from the Father, which had never happened in the history and the universe. It was a price Jesus was willing to pay, but it crushed the head of Satan. This is what the promise was in Genesis 3.15. God promised he would send someone, and we know God cannot lie. He's faithful, and what he promises, he will do. And I must say this, you can rely on God's promises, just like this one. What God says he will do, he will do. If God says in John 3, 16, whoever believes will have eternal life, will he do that? Absolutely he will. You must rely on the promises of God. They are our joy, our hope, and our strength. This is a promise, and the promise was for a Messiah. Well, there's a third thing. It was prophesied. Now, last week, Larry spoke a little bit, Pastor Larry spoke a little bit about the cost of keeping a promise and some of the prophecies that were given in the Old Testament. I really wanted to give you some things because Alfred Erdesheim has found over 456 verses of the Old Testament that refer to the birth and the life of the Messiah. And over 300 prophecies were given that told of Jesus' coming. But you can't remember 300 prophecies, so I put a list of just 29. And I wanted to give this to you, not so you could study it during my message, but that you could take it home and review it and know the certainty of our faith and how incredibly impossible this list would be for anyone but God. 
You see, mathematicians have said, just to try to give us a little bit of a hint, that to fulfill just 15 of these prophecies out of the 300 that Jesus fulfilled would be a number like 1 over 10 followed by 80 zeros. 10 followed by 80 zeros. It makes winning the lottery look like a sure thing. It's impossible. That's what this means. Without God, this fulfillment of these prophecies was impossible. You couldn't have it happen. But God is not bound by our probabilities. God can do the impossible. Isn't that what he said? With men, these things are impossible. With God, all things are possible. And I can even fulfill 300 prophecies in one person, my son, Jesus Christ. What I want us to leave with is one thing. There is absolute certainty that Jesus Christ is the promised Messiah. And it's also clear that there's absolutely no one else who ever will be. Jesus is our Messiah. Well, it was not only planned and promised and prophesied. Jesus came to fulfill God's purposes. It was the beginning of God's rescue mission. You know, a lot of times we wonder, how do rescue missions begin? You ever, anybody watch this, the show about the people trying to rescue those children in, uh, in the cave underwater? Someone had to go in. Do you think they planned? <laughs> I think so. Did they know they were possibly risking their lives to go get those kids? They did. Was it dangerous? Absolutely. But we, also, we often like to celebrate the beginning of the plan and the conclusion of the plan. The middle part is messy. It's dangerous. It's scary. This plan was started on Christmas night with the arrival of a baby. And so what were his objectives? Was his objectives to condemn the world? I mean, what did man expect? Even they told Jesus these things. When Jesus arrived, what would you expect a holy God who's been silent now since the garden, he actually shows up in person to a disgusting, evil world? What would he have to say? I just wanted to point out how bad you guys all are. When you look at me, I want you to see the gap between you and me. Is that what he had to say? No. Jesus said in John 3, 17 and 18, something remarkably different. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believed in him, believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So what did he come? Did he come to condemn the world? No, we were already condemned. We need a rescuer. He came to rescue he came to save. So let's look at the three purposes that we have this morning. There's a lot more. In the book of Luke, Jesus started telling, uh, we read a story, a narrative in, verse, in chapter 19. As Jesus was entering the city of Jericho, he was going there to, for an appointment with an unscrupulous, short, greedy tax collector who happened to be sitting in a fig tree. His name was Zacchaeus. 
Jesus walked up to the tree and told Zacchaeus to come down and that I'm eating at your house today. Well, that sounds presumptuous on one hand, but you got to understand how many rules Jesus was violating of the religious elite by saying that. No righteous Jew would ever eat in the home of a wicked man. But Jesus didn't seem to be bound by the religious crowd's rules and expectations. He was here on God's business. And while at that dinner, the unanticipated happened. Zacchaeus was transformed. He put his faith in Jesus. In fact, he said it was so transformational. He said, everything I've ever stolen that I took from anybody, I'll give them four times as much back. This, at this point, Jesus says these words, starting in verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. Now that doesn't mean lineage. That means a son of faith. He put his faith in Christ. For the son of man has come. Why? To condemn? No. To seek and to save that which was lost. See, I believe this encounter was transformational for two reasons. One, it was transformational for Zacchaeus, but it was incredible because Jesus wanted to point out there was no one too far gone. There was no one too wicked, too unsavable. He did not come for the righteous. He came not for the perfect, for the easily findable, for the religious crowd that went to church every week. He came for the wicked, the dirty, the God-haters. The utterly lost. You know, folks just like me. Just like you. That's who he came to save. We have hope here. And we have to always remember, you didn't find God. I didn't find God. He found us. See, when he went to seek and save, he wasn't just looking to seek to say, aha, there you are. Hide and seek. No, he came with a purpose. Well, Now, you got to hear me. I don't know what you think of when you think of Christmas, but do you think of rescue? Is rescue one of the first words that comes to your mind when you hear the word Christmas? I hope it is after today. This is God's rescue mission. Jesus came to seek and save you, and he came on Christmas. That's why we celebrate. We don't celebrate the baby because he was a baby. We celebrate the rescue the salvation of our souls. Well, the second purpose that Jesus came was to give us a reason to sing Christmas carols? No. He came to give his life as a ransom. Would you or I ever take on a rescue mission if you knew it would cost you your life? For whom would you even consider such a rescue? I mean, I have read sometimes encouraging and sometimes tragic stories about fathers who saw their child drowning in maybe cold, freezing, troubled waters, and they jumped in to try to rescue them. And occasionally they did, but sometimes both father and child lost their life. Did the father think it was worth it when he jumped in? Did Jesus think it was worth it when he came to earth? Yes, And the father, when he jumped in, may not have known he was going to die. Jesus, when he came, knew he would die. 
He came. Now, it's interesting to me. We sometimes like to keep the baby in the manger. We want to look at him and say, ooh, isn't he cute? Look at him wrapped in those swaddling clothes. He looks so innocent. He looks so harmless, actually so non-threatening. He hasn't said a word that would make me feel guilty. But that's not why he came. He came to die. That's what his whole life was about. Can you imagine growing up every day of your life knowing you only came to die? Jesus can. That's what he was about. Well, in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus told us the reason he came. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you see the word give? It doesn't mean to have his life taken. Did you know that no one took his life away from him? How do you kill God? Unless he surrenders his life, he will not die. I really believe the infinite God could keep kept his human body alive on that cross forever. That's why it says Jesus surrendered his spirit to God. Try it. A lot of people would love to just surrender their spirit when they're old and infirm and they said, I just wish I could go and go home with Jesus. We don't have that power. The Son of God did. And the second thing is a ransom. What is a ransom? It's a price paid to get something back that's precious, right? A person. You often hear it used in hostage situations. Did you know we were all held hostage by sin and death? They owned us. We were prisoners. We were slaves to sin and death. We could not get out. We were hopeless, helpless. Some, we were owned by another. The debt needed to be paid. We had no money, no way, no possible way to pay it. Jesus stepped in to pay that debt and to buy us back. Just like, I don't know if you know, the story of Hosea had a wife that was a prostitute. God told her to take a wife that was a prostitute. And she finally followed her way so badly that she got caught up in a prostitution ring, as it were, and was owned by a, maybe even a pimp of, of his day. God told Hosea, go buy her back. And he might think, why well, finally got rid of her? No, I want you to go buy her back. Well, but that costs money. You bet it does. But I want it as an example. I want to let this be an example of how Jesus is going to buy you all back even though you don't have any worth. You are dirty. You're unclean. You're sinners. But I want you. I want you. I'm going to buy you back. See? What would be the reason that Jesus would do this? Well, in Hebrews 12, 2, it gives us one of them. And it says this, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So what does this verse tell us is Jesus' reason for why he did this? He said, for the joy set before him. What joy? You! You were his joy. You were what, when he thought of rescuing you and restoring fellowship with you and bringing you into fellowship with the Father, that brought Jesus joy and it was worth the cost. 
You. That's what was worth it. That's what brought him joy. Do you think of that? When you think of Christ redeeming you, do you think of it as him getting joy out of doing that? Or he was just doing what God asked him to do? It says here, he got joy out of purchasing you, dying for you on a cross, bringing you home to be with the dad and mom, the dad, the father, and the son. That's what he enjoyed, and he thinks of you with joy. But we've been purchased. What does that mean? We belong to someone else. Do you know that Jesus purchased you if you put your faith in Christ? You've been purchased, not with the silver or gold, with the blood of offerings of animals, but with the blood of the Son of God. And who owns you? God does. That's why the Apostle Paul wants to remind us in 1 Corinthians. He says this, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. Is that what we're doing at Christmas? We're remembering God ransomed me. I have been bought with a price. I'm going to glorify God in the highest, just like the angels. Glory to God in the highest for his redeeming love and for his rescue. If you put faith in Christ, you've been rescued and you have the ransom paid. Well, the third purpose for coming to earth, we sang about in our song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. The line says, God and sinners reconciled. See, if God had remained in heaven, Jesus would remain with the Father. There would be no redemption. There would have been no sacrificial death on a cross. There would be no payment for sin. And there would be no reconciliation. We would be forever alienated from a holy God. But because Jesus came... We have all those things. He took on flesh so he could die for the sins of the world. And in that death, Romans 5.10 and Colossians 1.22 gives us a glimpse of what that death accomplished. Let's read them. In Romans it says, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And yet... In Colossians, yet he has now reconciled past tense. Do you hear it? There's no more good works to add to this. Your reconciliation was fully accomplished by Christ at the cross. You have been reconciled in his, in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him, holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Wow. God has reconciled us back to God. What does that mean? That means all grievances, all offenses, all barriers between us and a holy God have been forever eliminated through Christ. Through Christ alone. You have nothing to add to this party. There's no gift you can bring that can complete anything uncompleted. You have been reconciled if you have faith in Christ. Now, did you know that even though we have been fully reconciled, um, we're not flawless. Did anybody know they're not flawless? But because of Christ's rescue mission and death on a cross, you now look different to God. 
He sees you what? Clothed in the righteousness of his son. The righteous robes of Christ envelop you. If you put faith in Christ, you are not seen as the sinner. You really still are. Because nobody is perfect. We still fail God every day. I do. Maybe you're different. I don't think so. But we are seen by God as reconciled. And that means we've all been brought into his family, made sons and daughters of God. When we stand before him, all of our guilt, all of our shame, all of the reproach has been removed by Christ. And we stand holy and blameless and without accusation. And do you know who doesn't bring an accusation against us? Does God? There is no accusation. God does not bring one. Satan cannot bring one. And amazingly, you won't be able to bring one either. And I know some of you still convince yourself every day, I'm not worthy, I convict myself. God doesn't want that. You stand holy before a holy God because of Christ alone. Not because of how well you live. Christ alone. And that's why Paul could rejoice and say, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Can you get that picture? No condemnation ever again will fall on you. Ever. 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 It's an amazing thing. Well, I want to move on. There are three pictures in Scripture that I just want to give you quickly how this represents the heart of God and has always been the heart of God. We heard about one before. God walked with Adam in the cool of the garden every day because he wanted intimate fellowship. But Adam decided he wanted to do his own thing. He says, nope, I think I'll do what I want to do. That caused the sin, the rebellion, and the fall. And he was forever removed from the garden and God's presence. The last thing Adam saw as he looked back to the garden was not the welcoming face of God saying, how about another time together? But it was two angelic beings with flaming swords that guard the way back to the tree of life. He had no hope. But God was not content with that. God was not content with that. In fact, when we say we, he wanted to reconcile us and bring us back to God, I want to com communicate something. It's not about physical location. It's not about he had to leave the garden, so that was the problem. No, relationally, our hearts wanted nothing to do with God. Our hearts were enemies to God and his spirit. We had to have that problem fixed. And you know what tension in the heart looks like, closeness of heart. God wants closeness of heart with each one of us. Have you ever been in a room with someone you love, but tensions have been a little high at the moment, the relationship's a little strained, and even though you're both sitting quietly in the same room, you feel like there's an icy wedge that exists in the room. Words seem to be few. Uh, looks are dark. Awkward silence reigns. And in fact, you don't even know what to say. But that same person, on a different occasion, you might find that you're sitting in the room and no one has said anything for an hour, but you feel close in heart. It feels toasty to be next to them. That's a word my dad would use, toasty. Toasty is a word that communicates closeness not only of heart, but of fellowship, sitting around the campfire, staying warm together, being in the trial together, being in the situation together, he called toastiness. 
And, and no matter whether it was big or little or awkward or difficult or painful, if he was with the people he loved, it was toasty. God wanted to be toasty with us. And so what did he do? According to Matthew 1, 23, he took matters into his own hands again. He said, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And the word became flesh, according to John 1, 14, and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father. See, God invaded earth. He was not satisfied with this emotional, with this relational distance. He brought man, God right in the middle of us so he could walk among us, talk among us, be among us. He did that so not only he could redeem us, but he could be a sympathetic high priest. If there's anyone on this universe that understands the pain you're going through right now, the difficulties you're going through right now, the struggle of faith you might be going through right now, it's Jesus. He came to earth to be one of us, just like you and me, to go through this life of pain. You see, Jesus knows what it's like to be a human. That's one of the reasons he came. But I have to say, he's not satisfied with just being among us he wanted to bring us with him forever. And so he died on a cross so that we would be saved, we would be reconciled, we would be ransomed, we would be back in his family. And God says, you know what? I want to change something that's been present since the foundations of the universe. I used to reign up here in heaven called the third heaven, and no man has really ever been there in body. But what I'm going to do, according to Revelation 21, is I'm going to relocate my headquarters. I'm going to move it to earth. And I want to be with man. It says in Revelation 21.3, And look, I heard a voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Can you get it? You see the picture. God has always had a heart to be with you. The question is, do we want to be with him? And the only way we want to be with him is when he seeks us, he finds us, and he redeems us. Then we want to be with him. I'm so pleased he did. I know that when uh, I was a kid, I certainly qualified when I put my faith and trust in Christ because I was a sinner without hope. But he rescued me. But he rescued me. Do you know that this new home and this new relationship that he bought for us, no man can ever destroy. The relationship that he's purchased through Christ his son is an enduring eternal one and not man, not Satan, not anyone will ever rip us apart again. That's incredible. But the last one I want to go through is Jesus' coming was personal. It was personal to God and it was personal to you. See, why did he do any of these things? We know he came to ransom. We know he came to redeem. We know he came to pay the price. But why? And I think we often overlook and don't study well enough a verse we know the most well. 
And that's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. This is God's motivation. It's love. And we don't know a love like this. See, we have difficulty loving those that are lovable. Right? We have difficulty loving those that we should love. The ones that are nice to us, we have difficulty loving. God's love is so immense and so different than our love. It's eternal. It's infinite. It's huge. It's unconditional. But it's costly and it's personal. See, the targets of his love is also personal. Did you know that according to the verse we read in Ephesians, he has chosen the targets of his love before the foundations of the world. Your name was known to God before the foundation of the world. It also says that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and that you have been engraved on the palms of his hands. You are personal to God. He doesn't just, God came to save them. Uh-uh. He came to save you. Remember when you read the verse, for God so loved him that he gave his only begotten son. Are you kidding me? Why me? But I'm thankful. I'm thankful. This is God's motivation. The D.A. Carson said this about God so loved the world. God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big or that it includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. That is the customary interpretation of the word cosmos, world. The world is so wicked that John elsewhere forbids Christians to love it or anything in it in 1 John 2. But there is no contradiction between this prohibition and the fact that God does love it. See, Christians are not to love the world with the selfish love of participation. God loves the world with the selfless, costly love of redemption. God's love is different. It's immense, immeasurable. And it was not manifested to the good, but those who hate him to the hostile, to the wicked. And anyone who receives this love gift didn't have to get cleaned up first. Did you know that? Did you know you never have to wait to get good enough to approach God to receive this gift? You don't have to be dressed in the right clothes to go to the party to get the gift? Romans 8, 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, dirty, wicked, God-haters, God died for us. Christ died. So no matter how good you are or bad you are relative to someone else, it doesn't matter. Right here, right now, God's love is for you. You might consider yourself good. You might consider yourself bad. God's love is for you. And God's love is a gift of love, not coercion. And I just can't believe I cannot explain the love of God, so forgive me. I just don't know how. But a, a hymn writer from the 1900s, early 1900s, Frederick, Frederick Lehman, wrote this line, and you may have heard it, the love of God. Could we with the ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, were every stock on earth a quill and every one a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, 
nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We cannot interpret, fathom, understand the love of God. It is greater than your pain, your problems, your weakness, your anxiety, your, de- your hatred of God. His love is stronger, more powerful, more enduring. We cannot get away from this great fact that God so loved the world that he gave his best and kicked off Christmas, the rescue mission for our souls. Let me close with this thought. See, I really hope you remember this morning, if nothing else, that Jesus didn't come just to be a miraculous virgin-born baby in a manger, someone to sing songs about, someone promised alone, but he came for a purpose, a greater purpose. He came on a life and death rescue mission for the souls of men and for you and for me. If you don't know this Jesus, I invite you to know him today, to accept this Jesus. See, because God came to give the gift of life, eternal life, to all who would receive it. He came for the lost, the broken, the sick, the proud, the hostile, the independent, the alienated, the hurting, the abandoned, the destitute. That was me. Was that you too? Maybe it's you today. You still don't know this Jesus who came to seek and save you. So don't leave this morning. Please don't leave this morning. And just go back and celebrate the Christmas you always used to celebrate. Don't just go Christmas shopping, decorating, baking, and forget that God's rescue mission through Christ at Bethlehem was his love gift to you to rescue you from your sins and to put you in a family relationship with him that's toasty, that's welcoming, that's forever accepting and loving. If, if you haven't done that, I, I encourage you after the service, please come up, some of the elders and some, and I will be down front. I want to talk to you if you want to know my Jesus and accept this wonderful gift, God's rescue mission for your soul. Father, may I see Christmas differently every year. It's not about trees, cookies. It's not about Christmas carols. It's not even about the baby in the manger alone because that baby and what he stood for is what it's about. God's love for men given to us that began as a baby but ended at a cross and an empty tomb and a resurrected life where he reigns forever as my Savior and my King. Father, help us all to remember Christmas. When I hear the word Christmas, I want to hear the word rescue. This is God's love gift to rescue mankind and bring him back. May we all leave today and proclaim God's rescue to a hurting world until he comes. In Jesus' name, amen.